Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. It's good to see everyone here this morning. And we're going to continue in our series in the book of Acts. Uh, This morning we'll be looking at Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 42. And if you didn't bring your Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you to look underneath the chair in front of you, and you'll find a Bible there, and you'll find our passage on page 913 and 914. So Ephesians chapter 5, and I'll begin reading for us in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God." So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this time that we have together now. We thank you for how you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in your word. 
And so, Father, we pray that as we come to this time, that we would come eager to hear you speak to us in these moments through your word. So, Father, we pray that you would speak in your mercy and in your grace, that we would be attentive to hear. And then, Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would apply your word to our lives, that we might be more bold and courageous witnesses for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, when Jesus was on the earth, we know that he was often harassed and opposed, and ultimately, we know that he was martyred. And Jesus warned his disciples, as he was being opposed, as he was being harassed, he's warned his disciples that if they chose to follow him, if they were to be his faithful disciples, that they also would, uh, would face opposition. So for an, exa- an example, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And this is exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts. So Jesus has been harassed. Jesus has been opposed, ultimately martyred. He's told his disciples that they will be as well. And then in the book of Acts, as the disciples begin to preach the gospel, the church is established. Almost immediately we see that they face opposition and they face harassment. We know that this persecution continued and actually intensified as time went on. So in the first 300 years of the church, there was intense persecution at various times. In fact, there were 10 systematic persecutions of the early church over the first 300 years. Christians were ostracized, they were beaten, they were imprisoned, and many were crucified for their faith. We know that today the persecution of the Christian church continues as well. Kristen Powers wrote an article at the beginning of this year chronicling the increased persecution of Christians worldwide. And globally now, this is really an accepted reality that the persecution of Christians, at least in modern history, is not decreasing, but it's increasing. Listen to what Kristen Powers writes, quote, In their annual report of the worst 50 countries for Christian persecution... Open Doors found that Christian martyr deaths around the globe doubled in 2013. Their report documented 2,123 killings compared with 1,201 in 2012. In Syria alone, there were 1,213 such deaths last year. In addition to losing their lives, Christians around the world continue to suffer discrimination, imprisonment, harassment, sexual assaults, and expulsion from countries merely for practicing their faith. Once again, the worst persecutor of Christians is North Korea, where an estimated 50 to 70,000 followers of Jesus are suffering in prison camps for crimes such as owning a Bible, going to church, or sharing their faith. In November 2013, it was reported that 80 prisoners were publicly executed, many for possessing Bibles. Last year, North Korea sentenced an American missionary, Kenneth Bay, to 15 years of hard labor in a prison camp. The U.S. State Department has lobbied unsuccessfully for his release. If you've been following the news, you know that this particular missionary, many of his followers are actually being imprisoned and executed now. Even within the last day or two, there are reports coming out of Somalia of a Christian mother who was beheaded uh, within the last few days. So this is taking place all around the world. Persecution for Christians is in fact increasing as we see 
things taking place today. One of the things, though, that's so compelling as we think about the persecution that's taking place here in the book of Acts is the consistent, faithful, and joyful response of the apostles to the persecution that they faced. You know, we can all be thankful that we don't currently face imprisonment or beatings or death for our faith in Christ. And we also recognize that even even being thankful for that, that we don't face that type of intense persecution, we also recognize that oftentimes it takes far less for us to be deterred from being a faithful witness to Christ. Maybe we're deterred because we're mocked by our family. Or maybe we're less faithful in our witness for Christ because we are isolated by friends or co-workers. And my friends, we see in the book of Acts that even though we may not face this type of intense persecution right now that other Christian brothers and sisters are facing around the world, wherever we are, if we are to be a community that is faithfully and effectively on mission for Jesus, it requires a certain amount of courage and boldness because we will face opposition. We will be opposed. We see this in Acts, and so I want to ask the question this morning, how did the church respond with such courage? How were they so faithful even in the the face of persecution? And that's what I want us to look at this morning. That's really our main point, which we'll see from our text. That a life on mission demands courage, and a life lived in the goodness of the gospel produces courage. Okay, so that's what I want us to see this morning. A life lived on mission demands courage, and a life lived in the goodness of the gospel produces courage. Those are our two points. First of all, a life lived on mission demands courage. Now, in chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, Luke provides us a summary of how things are going in the church at this time. So in the church in Jerusalem, we see in verse 12, uh, we see that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles. So there were miraculous works taking place within the church. In verse 14, Luke tells us that more than ever believers were added to the church. So the church was growing and more and more people were believing in Jesus. In verse 15, Luke tells us that folks were even bringing their sick into the streets in the hopes that Peter's shadow might fall upon them, that they might be healed. This was a unique time in salvation history and significant miraculous works were taking place. In verse 16 we read that the church's reputation was extending beyond Jerusalem so that people even outside of the city and outside of the community were coming to Jerusalem to see all that God was doing in the church there. And so in summary we could say as, as Luke describes for us what's taking place in the church in Jerusalem at this time, in summary we could say that God is doing miraculous works through his people The church is growing in number and in influence so that the city of Jerusalem as a whole is benefiting. The church was a great benefit to the city as a whole. People were being healed. People were being set free from spiritual oppression. So why is it that the Sanhedrins, the leading religious people in Jerusalem at that time, why is it that they arrest the apostles? Luke tells us in verse 17, they were filled with jealousy. That's why they arrested the apostles. They were filled with jealousy. In the ESV study Bible, which is a great study Bible if you don't have one, in the commentary uh, below, they make a note regarding verse 17 and they state, quote, These Sadducees were jealous not for God's honor or the advancement of His kingdom, but for retaining their own influence and power. 
So there is, a, there is a holy type of jealousy, right? To be jealous for God's glory, to be jealous for the advance of the gospel. But this was not a holy type of jealousy. This was a selfish ambition. They were jealous for their own influence and power. You know, we have to admit that sometimes Christians can be unnecessarily offensive and abrasive. And maybe they're justified and the, or they, uh, the pushback that they get is justified. And we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be unnecessarily offensive or unnecessarily abrasive. But I think any fair look at human history has to acknowledge that the overwhelming majority of persecution that the world has directed towards Christians has been unjust. You think about Jesus' crucifixion. You think about the apostles as we're studying the book of Acts. You think about the first 300 years of the Christian church and the intense persecution that they suffered under the Roman Empire. You think about nations today like Syria and Saudi Arabia and North Korea and China where Christians are continually and systematically persecuted. We consider this situation here in our text. Were the apostles harming anyone? Were they hurting anybody? No, they were helping. Folks were being healed of sickness and disease and spiritual oppression. So why were they being harassed? The simple answer, Luke tells us, is petty jealousy. And listen, as Christians, we need to hear this. We need to hear this, that persecution at its core is unfair and unjust. You're never going to be persecuted and think to yourself, well, that's pretty fair right? It's going to be unfair. It's going to be unjust. And we have to accept that. And this type of unjust and unfair persecution in varying degrees is a necessary consequence of following Jesus. We need to know what we're getting into. You know, we've been thinking a lot about being a missional church. The book we're reading in our home groups is Everyday Church. We've been talking about what it looks like to be missionaries wherever God has placed you, whatever community or context He's put you in, to be intentionally loving and serving others with the hopes of ultimately sharing with them the good news that is in Jesus. This missional approach to outreach is highly relational, and that is good. I think we should seek to share our lives with others and love and serve others as we point them to Christ. But understand, my friends, that being missional or being relational in our outreach doesn't mean an avoidance of opposition, and it doesn't mean that we'll always be received well. In fact, Jesus assured us that that type of witness and that type of evangelism is just not possible in a fallen world where men and women are naturally opposed to God. Hopefully we will be able to develop many healthy and endearing relationships with people who have yet to believe in Jesus. But listen, my friends, and get this. We have to be aware here. If people don't like you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you failed. And as you engage people with the gospel, if people love you and always feel comfortable around you, it doesn't necessarily mean you've succeeded. When we faithfully engage others with the gospel, we see that some will respond well. And we know that others will resist. But that's okay, because it may very well be a sign of your faithfulness. Notice what happens next. The authorities had the apostles locked up. 
And after making the necessary preparations for the trial, they send for the apostles to be brought to them because they want to place them uh, on trial. And then the report comes back to the Sanhedrin as they've sent for the apostles to be brought to them. The report comes back that the apostles are no longer in prison. God has acted and moved in a miraculous way, and they've been set free and delivered. So in verse 24, we read, When the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Now you can imagine the discussion that would have resulted as, as, um, because they heard this news. If you think about a, a prison and, and, and authorities over a prison, if prisoners escape, naturally... The conversation they begin, to ha- they begin to have is, how did they escape? And how are we going to catch these prisoners, right? So you can imagine that they begin to have those types of discussions. Where are they? Where did they go? How will we find them? And then word comes to them. Well, it won't be too hard to find the apostles because they are in the temple and they are preaching the gospel. Notice the courage. The apostles returned to the scene of the crime. The very place where they had been arrested. And they are committing the very crime for which they had been arrested. They are preaching the gospel. Now where does that type of principled courage and boldness come from? That's what I want us to look at as we move into our second point here. So a life lived on mission demands courage. We see that in the example of the apostles. And then secondly, a life lived in the goodness of the gospel produces courage. A life lived in the goodness of the gospel produces courage. Notice as they they then are brought to the Sanhedrin, the charge that is uh, leveled against them. The Sanhedrin says, "We We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, one of the things I want us to notice again in this charge that is brought against the apostles is the emphasis on Jesus' name. We highlighted this, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago. But you know, some people will argue that all religions are the same. Maybe you're here this morning and you believe this yourself. That all religions are the same. That there's, there's a God, but He's revealed Himself in different manifestations or different ways, using different names, but they all lead to the same place. So there's Vishnu, there's Buddha, there's Allah, there's Jesus... They're just all manifestations or different names for the same reality. We're all going to end up at the same place in the end. I want you to notice in the book of Acts in particular, and we see this all throughout the New Testament, notice how particular the Scriptures are and the Gospel is regarding the person and the name of Jesus. So back in chapter 4, verse 7, the Sanhedrin inquired of the apostles, by what power or by what name do you do this? The apostles responded to the Sanhedrin in chapter 4, verse 10 and 12. Let it be known to all of you that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, this man is standing before you well. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Then in chapter 4, verse 17, the Sanhedrin understood this. They were very concerned that the apostles no longer speak in this name. The Sanhedrin decide, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. And in verse 18 of chapter 4 we read, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
Then the apostles get together as a result of the persecution they've been experiencing. They get together, they have a prayer meeting, they begin to ask God for boldness and for grace to continue to be faithful to the mission. And in chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, we read, As they pray to God, Lord, we pray to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And here again, in chapter 5, we see this emphasis on the name, the particular name of Jesus. The New Testament is clear, my friends, that Jesus is not just one manifestation of a slew of various manifestations of the same God, but rather Jesus is God Himself. He is the only way to God. He is God Himself. And it is by His name and His name alone that we can know God. So you see the charge that is leveled against them, but then notice their defense. The thing that's so striking about the apostles' defense is that it's really not a defense of themselves, but rather it's another Christ-exalting proclamation of the gospel. Look at Peter's message there in verse 29. Peter begins by stating that his primary allegiance is to God and not to man. He says we must obey God rather than men. And then in verse 30, you see that Peter goes on to affirm the reality of the resurrection. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. We know that the resurrection was absolutely essential to the apostles' message and absolutely essential to the gospel. The resurrection is a divine stamp of approval on the work and person of Jesus, affirming that Jesus is who he said he was. Peter then goes on, after he affirms the resurrection, to affirm the crucifixion of Jesus. He says in verse 29, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Now, there is a reason why the apostles use this specific language. He doesn't just say whom you killed by crucifying, but whom you killed by hanging on a tree. Why does he use that type of language? In the Old Testament, one who was executed for a crime and was then hung on a tree was considered to be cursed of God. You can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 21 Verses 22 and 23. And the shocking message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the Messiah, the promised one, the sinless and holy one, took our sin upon himself. He endured the wrath of God that we deserve so that he was cursed of God in order that we might be forgiven. And instead of receiving curse and condemnation from God, we might receive blessing and the acceptance of God. So Peter affirms the resurrection. He affirms the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Then Peter goes on to speak of the exaltation of Jesus. In verse 31, God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior. So not only has Jesus been crucified, not only has He been resurrected, He has also been exalted and ascended to the Father where He rules and reigns. Then next, Peter speaks of the need for Israel and the Sanhedrin and all of us to repent of our sin and to be forgiven through the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 31, he says to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Peter makes it clear here in this statement, as well as other places in the book of Acts, that repentance is in fact a gift from God. It's required of us, but it does not originate with us. Repentance is a gift given to God's children by grace as we turn from our sins and we trust in Jesus as our Savior. And then finally, Peter speaks of his responsibility to be a witness of this message. So we read, and we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those 
who obey Him. Again, notice the courage and the boldness of Peter and the apostles. They don't, and this is striking, they don't offer a defense for themselves. But once again, they proclaim the message of Jesus for which they are on trial. Now you see there in the text that initially the response is not good. In verse 33 we read, When they heard this, that is Peter's defense, Peter's reiteration of the gospel of Christ, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Now we could respond at this point and say, Good job, Peter. You really ticked them off now, right? But remember... If, if when you engage people with the gospel, if they don't like you, it doesn't necessarily mean you failed. And when you engage people with the gospel, if they love you and always feel comfortable around you, it doesn't mean necessarily that you've succeeded. The opposition we see here is actually the fruit of Peter's faithfulness, not his failure. Soon we know that from the text that sanity prevails... Gamaliel was a highly respected teacher of the law, and he urged caution. Gamaliel argued that if this movement was not of God, it would fizzle out. But if it was of God, there would be nothing that could stop it. Actually, Gamaliel's words proved to be prophetic. Because this movement, which began with just 120 disciples in Jerusalem, continued to spread. And continues to spread across the globe even today. 2,000 years later, in spite of facing fierce opposition and enduring the harsh brutality by some of the world's most powerful figures in governments, Christianity still thrives and expands and takes new territory every day. Tertullian, one of the church's early church fathers, was filled with hope when he addressed the leaders of the Roman Empire in the 3rd century and he cried out, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. The seed of the church is the blood of Christians. That day the Sanhedrin decided to spare the lives of the apostles, but not their backs. They were sentenced to a beating, along with another warning to not speak in the name of Jesus. Now, how would they respond to this? They've been so bold. They've been so courageous. But they were delivered from prison, right? They were set free. So, so, so yeah, I'm, of course they're bold because they were delivered, right? But now they're beaten. So how will they respond now? Look at verse 41 and 42. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They never stopped. They kept proclaiming the message. John Piper writes in response, quote, If you can't destroy the joy of Christians, but only increase it by beating them, then Christians are the most indomitably happy people in the world. I would love to give the rest of my life to building that kind of crazy, upside-down, countercultural, indomitable, Christ-exalting joy in God's people. End of quote. How did they do that? 
How were the apostles so courageous and so bold in the face of opposition and beating and imprisonment and the danger of death? I believe that there's an answer here even for us in this text. The way that the, gospels were, that the apostles were so bold and the way they were so courageous is that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they had come to know Jesus both as leader and as Savior. You see, first of all, they had come to know Him as leader in verse 29. They say in chapter 5, verse 29, We must obey God rather than men. Verse 30, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a tree. God exalted Him at His right hand as leader and Savior. Ed Welch, who's a biblical counselor, wrote a book a number of years ago entitled, When People Are Big and God is Small. And one of the points he's making in that book is that oftentimes our lives are marked by anxiety and fear and restlessness. And that's not what God wants for us. God doesn't want us to be marked by fear, but He wants us to be marked by peace. And oftentimes the reason why we wrestle with anxiety and we wrestle with fear and we we struggle with these things is because we um, we obsess over the fears and the expectations and the evaluations of others so that others become really, really big in our lives and God becomes really small. But listen, my friends, your rude boss at work may seem really, really big, but God is bigger. And your neighbor who looks at you weird when you, talk to them about your, uh, when you talk to them about your faith in Jesus, may seem big, but God is bigger. And your family member who ridicules you for your faith may seem really, really big, but God is bigger. The apostles stood before the most powerful political and religious body of their day, And they said to them, Jesus has been exalted as the supreme leader over all other leaders. We must obey Him rather than men. You see, through the gospel, they had come to know Jesus as He really is. As the Son of God. As the one who had been raised from the dead and conquered death. And so essentially, and do you get this? Essentially, the apostles are saying to the religious leaders, Look, you've already killed Him. You already killed Jesus. And we saw how that turned out. He was raised from the dead. And he promised us that if we follow him and trust in him and you kill us, he will raise us from the dead as well. And they were fearless. In their minds, Jesus was really, really big. And the leaders of the Jewish Jewish life in that day were small. And therefore, they were fearless. My friends, let me ask you, who is big in your life? Who looms over your life, causing fear and anxiety and timidity? And who graciously rules over your life as you submit to Him and trust Him, inspiring courage and hope and boldness? The more we press into knowing Jesus as leader, as sovereign Lord who has been resurrected from the dead, the more we will become fearless and bold in our witness. Secondly, they came to know Jesus as Savior, and you see this in the text as well. They say to the religious leaders, we must obey God rather than men. 
The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader, and here it is, and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You know, oftentimes we think that courage or boldness or any other admirable virtue can be produced by demanding it, right? So if, you know, we read this passage, the apostles are bold, we should be bold. So you just tell people, be bold. You just insist on it, right? You command it. If you press the issue long enough, people will get it and they'll start being bold. If you do that, I think you'll get some results perhaps, but probably not the results you're looking for. What was it then that so compelled the disciples to be fearless in the face of persecution and opposition? I would argue that it was not just that they knew the right thing to do. They didn't just know that they were supposed to be bold and therefore they were bold. Rather, they were compelled by the joy of knowing that their sins had been forgiven and that they were totally and completely loved and accepted by their Father. They were compelled by the joy of the gospel and they knew they had nothing to lose. William Wilberforce, many of you may know that name, he was a Christian member of the British Parliament in the 19th century. And he fought his entire life for the end of the slave trade. God was gracious, and by the end of his life, he was able to see that become a reality. And his life was full of courage and good works. He wrote a book on ethics that was entitled, A Practical View of Christianity. And so he was trying to admonish his own generation towards a Christian morality, a Christian ethic that was concerned for the oppressed, for the downcast, that was uh, marked by love and caring for others. But one of the things that's so shocking about this book that he writes on morality and ethics is that the book really, in, in its essence, doesn't focus on morality or ethics. Rather, the book is primarily doctrinal. It's about doctrine, Christian doctrine. In particular, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Wilberforce argues in his book that it's not just a mere determination to know that, or, or a, a knowledge that you have to do good works or a determination to do good works that results in good works, but rather it is the experience of this great truth of God's free grace in Jesus Christ that produces a life of good works. Matt Pierman, who is an author that I'm reading right now, he's written a book, and he comments in that book on Wilberforce. Let me just read you a quote here. He writes, quote, The Christians in Wilberforce's day, by reducing Christianity to a mere system of ethics, had obscured the greatness of Christ and thus cut themselves off from the joy that provides the true power to obey Him and to be prolific in good works. And that's possible, isn't it? It's possible to talk about Christianity just in terms of morality or ethics. Not that you're doing it right, but people do that. And what he's arguing is that doesn't really produce good works in the end. Going on the quote, Wilberforce observed that the nominal Christians in his day had low views of God's grace and Christ's work because they failed to grasp that at its core, Christianity is about not what God requires of us, but what He does for us. What He did for us by dying for us to provide the forgiveness and righteousness that we could not provide ourselves. The notion that we must obey God in order to be accepted by Him results in less moral action, not more, because it results in less love for God. 
Conversely, realizing that we are holy and completely accepted by God apart from our works through faith in Christ Jesus results in massive and radical action for good because it results in great love and joy for God. As Jesus said, he who is forgiven little loves little, whereas those who are forgiven much love much. This is what is happening with the apostles. They are absolutely stunned and have been wrecked by the grace of Jesus. I mean, you consider, the apostles had the warnings of Jesus, right? So so Jesus said, if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted. They had the warnings of Jesus. Those were important. They had the example of Jesus, so they could look at Jesus and say, look at how Jesus suffered, and that's how we should be faithful, and that's how we should suffer, and that was important. But I would argue at the end of the day, it wasn't the warnings of Jesus, it wasn't even the example of Jesus that so empowered them, but it was the grace of Jesus that set them free and filled them with a joyful, courageous boldness. They knew that Jesus Christ had bore all their sins on their behalf at the cross, that they were totally loved and accepted by the Father. They were fueled with joy by that reality, and they knew they had nothing to lose, and so they could lay it all on the line. My friends, following Jesus is not easy. Jesus told us that it would not be. Ministry itself involves suffering. I know that some of you here this morning, maybe you are pastors or missionaries. Some of you may be pastors and missionaries in the future. All of us are called to be faithful witnesses for Jesus wherever He has placed us. And listen, as we pursue this journey of being on mission for Christ, we don't want to be a people who throw in the towel when difficulty or hardship comes our way. We don't want to be a people who walk the other way when we're disappointed that things don't turn out the way we want them to. We want to be persistent and resilient for the cause of Christ, like the apostles are here in the opening book chapters of the book of Acts. We want to be a people who don't melt before difficulty and danger. You know, part of our vision as a church is, to, is that God would be pleased in His grace and mercy to use us to reach the unreached peoples of the world, those people who have no or little access to the gospel. And we just need to be honest. That's going to involve courage. If we're going to have any success in that endeavor, we must be courageous and bold in the gospel. And so how do we get there? My friends, we press deeper into the good news of the gospel. As we come to know Jesus increasingly as our leader, as our sovereign Lord who has conquered death, we don't have to be afraid. He's gone before us. He's conquered death. He rules and reigns supreme. And we press deeper into knowing Him as our Savior and realize that there is no more fear of rejection We've been forgiven, we've been accepted, we've been totally loved and received by the Father, and we should let the joy of the Father's full love and acceptance fuel us to courageous and bold mission. May God, by His Spirit, grant it to be a reality in our lives and in our church. Let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the example of the apostles who were so 
courageous in their witness to Jesus. Lord, as we think, think about their example, we are encouraged, and challenged, we're convicted, Lord. And Father, we confess before you that oftentimes we are far too easily discouraged, fearful, despondent. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us. Lord, forgive us for ways in which we have shied away from being faithful to the gospel and taking risk for the sake of the gospel because of fear. And Lord, we pray that in your mercy and in your grace that the gospel would become a deeper reality to us, that Jesus would become more personal and real to us in all his saving power and glory as Lord and Savior, as leader, as sovereign, so that we might be increasingly bold and fearless in the mission that you've called us to. Lord, we pray that you would grant this by your spirit and for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.